0: And welcome to Feckin' Metal, episode 34. I'm your host, Fergal Trainer. This is also Ark Sabbath, episode 5.0. What's Ark Sabbath, you might ask? It's a series I've been doing on Black Sabbath for several months, going back to the initial conversations, which happened in February of this year, and uh, currently now onto my seventh or eighth episode, even though it's episode 5.0. Don't ask me questions about that. It's a numbering system that frankly... I regret. We haven't had one of these episodes in over a month and a half. Uh, That's because recently I've spoken to guests such as Marcus Grosskop from Halloween, Kyle McNeil from Seven Sisters and my first ever in-person interview with Jarvis Leatherby from Night Demon. All happening recently. So, a bit of an exciting time for Feckin Metal. Lots of different things happening. Interviews I've been setting up for a while that in some cases had taken several months and the timing just happened where they all landed quite close together and I was able to interview all of those three uh, people within a short period of time. So I thought to myself, why not put out three episodes unrelated to the Black Sabbath arc and give people a bit of a break from that and then move back to it uh, in a few weeks' time or as it as it's turned out over a month and a half later um, and go back to it when it's fresh again and people are interested again maybe instead of having to listen to it, maybe 10 or 11 episodes in a row all on the same topic, which can become a bit boring and repetitive. So thanks again to all my guests, Marcus, Kyle, uh, Jarvis, Friends at a show now at this stage, um, I really appreciate your time and effort you put into having those Zoom calls with me. And Jarvis especially going out of his way completely, uh, uh, physically driving here from Derry. uh, I really appreciate that. I know he was on his way to Dublin anyway, but completely went out of his way to come to Ashtown and come to my apartment here um, and do an interview. So much appreciated. It was great experience to do something like that in person. Didn't know how what to be doing, make an eye contact, not make an eye contact. Went with a happy medium of semi eye contact some of the time and looking away at the others. Uh, let the, the other half of the time, also, I found myself actually writing down things that he was saying while he was speaking to me and keeping them put aside so that I could remember to ask them later. Which is obviously what I do when I'm on a, a video call with people. They can't really see what I'm doing uh, with with my hands. That sounds weird. Uh, with my hands. Obviously Jarvis could see me, so I, I wondered if that was a bit off-putting to him when he was talking to me and I was just there taking notes. Anyway, that's just a little small behind-the-scenes peek about what happened there. It all worked out very well. So, this is Ark Sabbath. Left John a bit of a cliffhanger last time. I mentioned that the Ian Gillen experiment was seen by some as a success and some as a failure, uh, but the next chapter would be an absolute disaster that's not to express my opinion of the music made by the next incarnation of black sabbath but what it was intended to express was the ridiculous series of lineup changes and cancelled shows and changing a singer halfway through a tour and then recording an album with a new singer and then him leaving and then re-recording with another new singer and eventually releasing what became the album seven star and the eternal idol which is what's this which is what this episode is going to cover off it was just a ridiculously Almost hilarious time with the lineup changes in Black Sabbath. I'll get to all of that in a minute. Just before we do, I'd like to mention that there is a new guest on Ark Sabbath. So I wasn't intending on any new people joining the Ark, but a situation arose where somebody was quite interested in doing this and uh, we decided yeah let's do it let's do another interview I previously had beefed up the next section of the arc with additional interviews from Alejandra who you'll remember from the Ronnie James Dio episode in particular um, and Philip who's been with me for the Ronnie James Dio and Ian Gillan focused albums from Ark Sabbath but also made some comments on various other albums and, and the Aussie era as well so I beefed up my content, increasing my audio content from about, I think I had nine and a half hours of audio I've got about 15 hours worth of stuff now at this stage, which it's, it's gone mental, out of control nearly but I have a system in place, it's all good I, I'm comfortable now with what I need to do to edit these episodes. Obviously as well, everybody knows, there's a new Iron Maiden song out, Wrath of the Waters. No, of course not. Uh, the writing is on the wall, has been for some time. Uh, writing on the wall came out there a few days ago as I record this, and everybody's been going bananas about it, including me. Um, And I appeared actually as a guest on a, an Iron Maiden podcast called Maiden A to Z. Uh, Jonathan Headlin, one of the two, presenters or hosts of this podcast contacted me and asked if I'd like to be a guest on a hype episode looking at all the different rumours, all the different clues that Iron Maiden had left along the way and I appeared on that so if you want to go and have a look for that um, you can find it in their feed, it's Maiden A to Z A space hyphen space Z or Z if you're from the United States of America or wrong yeah so sorry that was the episode which is numbered 35 and was released on the 5th of July Maybe you mightn't be interested in that now if you haven't already listened to it because since then the album has been released. But if you are interested in going back you can listen to my Madcap Theories some of which didn't come Um, true. And uh, just ridiculous hype uh, from five people who are really excited about what Iron Maiden were going to release. I won't give you my thoughts on that right here. This is not the time or the place for that. I'll give you my thoughts on that somewhere else in the near future. Maybe you've already guessed where, but you'll be hearing from me about that new song on another podcast, which I will promote when it's released eventually, and I will let everybody know where they can listen to my thoughts, my reaction to the new song Writing on the Wall by Iron Maiden and the cover art and all of that stuff that we got recently as well. In in the run-up to all of that, there was a after I appeared on Maiden Night is Z, and before the single was actually released, there was the Twitter listening party, of course, and that was to listen to Seven Son of a Seventh Son in full and a large number of people I follow on Twitter and some followers of mine and people who, whose podcasts we all listen to, uh, each other's podcasts and things. We all participated in uh, a, a, a Zoom call to listen to Seven Son of a Seven Son and look out for any hints that were dropped by the band, Bruce, and just generally enjoy having a Zoom call. And Jonathan joined that, Jonathan from Maiden A and then... Apparently some promises were made in the night, which I was reminded about by Alejandra a couple of days later. She's like, so is Jonathan going to come on to talk about the Eternal Idol on Ark Sabbath? And I was like, oh yeah, I kind of vaguely remember that. But I hadn't remembered it in the couple of days that had followed. So I messaged him and asked him if he was interested in appearing. And he said he had also forgotten that he agreed to do that. But he did and we decided to do it. So I did an interview with Jonathan and we covered off the Eternal Idol and we also covered off some other material recorded by the tony martin era black sabbath but we also had a discussion about heavy metal in general and what it's like growing up in sweden a place many of us perceive to be um some kind of haven for heavy metal bands i certainly did perceive it that way before ever visiting it because it's just seems to be known in, in Scandinavia that heavy metal is very popular. Heavy metal albums will enter the charts when a band has a new album out they'll get into the top 10 most often in Scandinavian countries and um, in, in many cases like an Iron Maiden album or a similar band's album has gone to number one which you don't really see in the Republic of Ireland, England, um, generally in the UK and in a lot of other countries in Europe you don't really see those really high charting metal albums and you you do often see in scandinavia and because everybody else on the arc got to give a little bit of background about themselves i thought i should introduce jonathan to everybody properly firstly in case you haven't listened to Maiden a to z and secondly if you just want to hear about what it's like being a heavy metal fan in sweden because i certainly did so i'm going to start with that here's jonathan hedlund one of the co-hosts of Maiden A to Z, talking about being a heavy metal fan, getting into Black Sabbath, and what it was like growing up in Sweden, where, as an outsider looking in, heavy metal seems to be really popular.
1: So it was early, late 90s. They they did the reunion thing, right? So I didn't attend that, but a friend of mine did. And he came back and we were all about riffs at that time. He just picked up the guitars and he, so he came back and like, oh yeah, they were really old and but uh, pretty good actually. you know yeah he said so anyway and we were young you know we were 12 and a half or 13 or something Yeah, 13 so he came back and uh, showed me a couple of riffs because then we were doing metallica riffs and i did some maiden stuff as well and but uh, i really connected very quickly actually to the sabbath sound more so than maiden actually at the time and more so than metallica and but that was aussie sabbath exclusively then for quite some time but that, the 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 riffs Ozzy was like the coolest singer I've ever heard. So uh, some people don't like him. I know people that hate his voice, but for me, I I love it. Dio came a bit later, came a bit later. That was uh, with Holy Diver at first for the longest time. And then I managed to see, I actually saw Black Sabbath in 05. That was also a big point. That was the original four in in Sweden. Yeah, playing mostly from third, the three first albums and uh, very good, you know, uh, 19 then. And really cemented that taste for that type of riff, you know. Started tuning my guitars down to C-sharp uh, because of that. And Sabbath Bloody Sabbath became my favorite around then. And it stayed It stayed so. It's uh, still my favorite. But the Dio stuff and the later stuff, uh, and also, of course, Tony Martin, came a bit later. I uh, went for Wacken Open Air in Germany. I saw Dio with his Dio band at that time, and uh, I was really impressed, you know. Just the delivery, when you actually saw the man as well. Because I had liked the songs, you know, I was a big fan of Stand Up and Shout. and uh, uh, What's that other one? Don't Talk to Strangers? I love to. But um, then I got to see him live in the flesh, and that was a bit different. And then they did the Heaven and Hell thing. And I managed to see that in Sweden Rock, south of Sweden, Blekinge. And uh, that was really cool. That was really good. What could it have been? 2009 is my most fair guess. Without, look, without looking it up. But sometime around when they did the Heaven and Hell, it was fairly brief, right? But such a massive sound, really liked it. And uh, then, I, then he became, I think he's the best heavy metal vocalist, actually, like through time. But it's not always what I want to hear. I don't always want to hear Dio, you know? So I, like speaking of Rainbow, for example, I gravitate sometimes towards the non-Dio albums, just for a change, you know, because it's a very distinct voice, right? but
0: very good so I asked Jonathan when and how he got into the Ronnie James Dio era of Black Sabbath
1: yeah I had heard Neon Knights and a couple of others uh, of course you know in in the overall rotation but uh, yeah then I got heavily into I caught on to Humanizer actually uh, yeah very cool album and still one of my favorite Sabbath records top three for me I would say from our conversation,
0: it seemed that Jonathan had gotten into the Dio era quite late, so I asked when he got into the Heaven and Hell and Mob Rules albums specifically.
1: I bought them on vinyl last year. I found like good original pressings of them, and now I love listening to those, especially Mob Rules. Uh, it's become like a staple. If I, have friend- if I have friends over, that's what I put on, and it's probably also in the top three, together with Sabbath <laughs> Bloody Sabbath and The Humanizer, actually. Those three. To follow on from similar questions
0: I've asked other participants in the ARC, I asked Jonathan if he had a wide circle of heavy metal fan friends while growing up in Stockholm.
1: Yeah, yeah, I do actually here in Stockholm. Uh, I guess it's a heavy metal city, heavy metal town, and uh, we kind of started as a little group of friends, and that friends group is long gone now as a unit, you know. We might see each other aside from the group, but that still kind of flourished into more, and then playing in bands... uh, Seeing shows and you get to know. It's a semi-small city, uh, one million in the core and two and a half maybe with the extended areas. So you keep those contacts somehow. You know they pop up on any Facebook and stuff. And also these days I have some friends that you know they live with kids. I don't, <laughs> so they they enjoy coming over. They enjoy coming over to my place and we can play blast some vinyl and and be basically be kids again, but maybe with a little bit more of a interesting discussion, I hope, going on.
0: As our conversation went on, I was intrigued about the heavy metal scene in Stockholm and Sweden in general. Jonathan explains.
1: That's an interesting one. I thought about it myself. And I would say, as Stockholm goes, where I've been born and raised and spend most of my time, even though I lived other places. But uh, over here, it's a lot of bands, you know, which can be good and bad. So if you're playing a local show, the risk is that half the crowd are bands and they don't really want to see you go further. You know, <laughs> They're kind of like arm, arms crossed like, yeah, I could have done that better. That vibe sometimes leaks in there. And then maybe high alcohol prices and stuff. So the, the vibe can be a bit stiff in the shows, even on the local uh, front. But actually when you reach some kind of plateau in terms of, uh, I guess, I don't know, success, uh, popularity, whatever... Then all of a sudden, uh, you'll find super fans in Stockholm, who are also in bands, but they don't care anymore because they—they're they're not comparing you to, to themselves. Yeah, and there you have our Maiden, Metallica, uh, Sabbath, uh, plenty of bands, and uh, we have connections to a lot of musicians. We're the third biggest export in the world of music in general, is Sweden, uh, after sta- after states and and England. That would be. So that's like that's uh, the main feather in our hat, I think. You know, Max Martin is Swedish. He composed quite a bit of hits for Britney Spears and Backstreet Boys, and you know, then we're looking at big money stuff, and that's why we're a big music export. But he was also a metalhead. You know, it's just that he knew how to write "Hit Me, Baby, One More Time" and and that sort of stuff. But he's still with his long hair, with his Viking beard, sunglasses on, and still probably listening to Merciful Fate when he gets home. You know. <laughs>
0: As most people are aware, Black Sabbath came from a working-class area, as did many of the prominent heavy metal bands from the UK, and other countries in the world as well. I asked Jonathan if he felt the same was true of Sweden. Is heavy metal a working-class pastime and a working-class pursuit?
1: It is, but also like uh, young kids in rich families in rich suburbs also tend to, you know, because they can get a guitar, maybe a nice guitar, so they also tend to move towards that and then you have an interesting mix of different socio-economical uh, fields, yeah, that's a great question. Actually, An interesting one that I've looked into a little bit. So the Gothenburg scene is fairly big, right? That w- that one is based around this very well-off suburb where all of them lived. At the gates, dark tranquility and flames. They all lived in that area, and they were well off. So you know they had garages to rehearse in. You know, in some areas, your parents can't afford a garage. It's quite expensive to have one in Sweden. Uh, I mean, if you have a house. But then the house and the yard is very expensive. So definitely in that scene, uh, Stockholm scene, a little bit different. And also you can hear in the sound, it's a little bit punkier, a little bit bit more suburban. uh, If you compare the styles of death metal, I don't know if you talk any death metal on the show, but uh, the Gothenburg and Stockholm one uh, is a different sound.
0: All right. So that was Jonathan, who'll be joining us from when we get to the Eternal Idol album uh, onwards for a couple of comments here and there on future albums as well. Um, but yeah, just like all the other members of the ARC, I think it's interesting to get a bit of a background on people so you feel like you know them a bit better rather than just a random talking head on a podcast. Um, but let's set the scene for what we're about to discuss. We're not into the Tony Martin era yet. Before that, we had to get through the brief Glenn Hughes era of Black Sabbath, and I will let Martin Popoff narrate what happened before back in 1983 and 1984 in Black Sabbath, leading to Glenn Hughes eventually joining the band. So this is from his book called Born Again, Black Sabbath in the 80s and 90s. Thanks, Alejandra, for sending me on these relevant pages. I've since purchased the book from Amazon, so I have the physical copy here. And from the chapters I've read, it's actually quite good. Uh, Martin Popoff has written a lot of books on heavy metal. I think I heard him mention the number 80 before recently. He also did a very interesting interview with... Uh, Melissa on Metal Chat with Melissa. Melissa has obviously been a guest on Arc Sabbath episodes in the past. So if you want to check that out, go and find it on her feed. It's Metal Chat with Melissa. Very interesting and eye-opening interview with Martin Popoff. Anyway, this is from his book, Born Again, Black Sabbath in the 80s and 90s. Did Ian Gillan quit Black Sabbath or was he fired? It's neither here nor there, because the real reason Ian left was that a lucrative deal was struck to put the original Mark II Deep Purple back together again which resulted in the construction of the highly successful Perfect Strangers album, a record beloved by fans and platinum certified to boot. Ian has further stated that he signed on for one Black Sabbath album and one tour. Probably true. Unlikely all parties realised after the fact that this turned out to have been a wise and sensible decision, given that the post-project assessment by all involved was that Ian with Sabbath was a mismatch. Yet to the press... Ian would often intimate that everybody knew he was going back to Deep Purple after that, which is not true. In no way was that deal sealed. Discussions, pertinently in the months even before Born Again was birthed, were no more than, at various times, a combination of preliminary, partial, rumour-filled and supposition-assumed. Although it is true, real attempts were made at making it happen. Talk to any of the Rainbow guys and they'll tell you. It was all quite last minute. Although, the speed with which Perfect Strangers emerged leaves the cause for one to wonder. The album was not issued 14 months after Born Again and Rainbow swan song bent out of shape. Rainbow was part of the brew because both Richie Blackmore and Roger Glover were needed to make the Mark II reunion complete. In the mix there was also talk that Geezer did not want to tour for more than six weeks against the wishes of the others and that a certain onstage tension could be seen in Ian's performances leading people to believe Ian wasn't happy with his lot. For his part, Geezer says that he was boozing hard during the tour. Loaded the whole time, in his words. In any event, Ian was out, with the tour ending rather abruptly, with lots of cancelled shows along the way, more dates had been planned as Born Again was doing well, and a video for Zero the Hero had just been issued, even if the clip was low budget, typical for a Sabbath visual, and so the promotion machine ground to a halt and Tony and Geezer found themselves with less of a band than ever, given that Bill wasn't even part of the situation at this point. However, once Bev Bevan had also departed for ELO 2 Bill was unsurprisingly mooted as part of whatever the hell was going to happen next which wasn't much. Bill, living in LA, was jogging regularly and using a rowing machine, having emerged from what he calls a four-month depression. Having apparently quit drinking, he said yes immediately when asked to join, having missed the friendship of his mates. The plan thereafter was to get an unknown to fill the vocalist role, the band beginning its serious search with Ron Keel of Steeler, soon to be operating as Keel. Next, one David Donato was seriously given a shot the situation resulting in a premature photo session and a full-blown feature in Kerrang! on Donato on his joining. Fading from view after a few months, David went and formed White Tiger, who issued one album before he would disappear from the music scene completely and end up building motorcycles. Yes, David, back in the spring and summer of early 84, Bill muses. When I got sobered up a few months later, which is the last time I've had a drink, I tried to involve myself once again with the fellas. David was a nice guy, really nice person. But again, I found sitting in the room going... Oh my god, I just wasn't getting it, and I had to face the truth and say goodbye. I just said, no, this is twice now I've tried to leave. So, with Bill out of the picture again, next up for serious consideration was the mysterious Jeff Fenholt, who was wrapped up in both the post Keith Ralph Armageddon and a possible band with remnants of Rainbow and Elf. Of note, by this time, the drummer of choice was Eric Singer from Lita Ford's band, soon of Kiss and Alice Cooper fame. Demos exist of Fenhold working on songs that would make their way, quite altered for legal reasons, to Black Sabbath's 12th studio album Seven Star, with Jeff Nichols being extremely involved in the new material. Geezer wasn't even around for these, so at this point you had Tony, as well as the unjustly invisible Nichols, and that's it. Next to be part of the brew, and to stick around for the eventual record, was bassist Dave the Beast Spitz, important as well, given that he was the link to Seven Star's producer, Jeff Glicksman, who had produced AmeriCade's unreleased second album, Rock Hard, for Spitz and Band. This is getting a bit ridiculous, said Tony in late 1984, having dispensed with Donato. We thought we were really ready to begin recording our new album, but then we realised that the band wasn't as good as we wanted it to be, and more changes would have to be made. Black Sabbath has an incredible reputation to live up to, and I'd quicker dissolve the group than do something that would hurt Sabbath's legacy. David acted like a star from the day we met him. There's nothing wrong with that. But we've had enough trouble with egomaniacs in this band over the last few years. We want somebody who's confident, yet we're also looking for a bloke we can get on with. The answer may be to find somebody British. Intriguingly, Tony goes on to say that there were clashes between Donato and the producer trying to cobble together an album for the guys. None other than Bob Ezrin. It was a matter of opinion, pure and simple. We want a singer to fit our approach. While some of the people we've had in the band recently want us to basically become their backing band. I've been involved with Sabbath for 15 years, and I'm not about to let anyone new come in and tell me how things should be done. We're a very British band, and we've learned that we need to have British blood in the group. That's what we tried to do with Ian Gillan last year, but Ian's mind was everywhere but in Sabbath. The stories of the Deep Purple reunion had already begun, and we knew that his tenure with us would be short. We were located in California at the time that Ian split. So we decided to see if the local talent would meet our needs. We thought we'd found the answer with David, but unfortunately that didn't work out. Now we'll head home to England and find a singer who can be with us for the next 10 years. We're looking for somebody new who can come in and blow everybody's mind. The days with Ozzy are a thing of the past. Maybe we'll work together on some project in the future, but now is not the right time. Our future lies with finding the best young vocalist in Britain and showing everybody that Black Sabbath is still the best heavy metal band in the world. Well, he wasn't young, but he was British. The job fell upon none other than Glenn Hughes to put the crowning touch to the collection of souls that would create Seventh Star. So there you go. That's a passage from Martin Popoff's book there on the chapter, which is 17 pages in length, dedicated solely to Seventh Star and the era of the band around that time, from Ian Gillan leaving to eventually um, Glenn Hughes joining. And it's it's quite in depth. That was only three or four pages there that I read. It gets more coverage than the same time period it gets in other books about the band. So it was quite interesting to read a combination of archival interviews there that really set the scene. So good work from Martin Popoff to help explain this period of the band. And to me, it's kind of the best time I can think of to mention the lineup changes in Black Sabbath and just who is considered a member of the band. And I spoke to Joe Sigler about this topic. And before I play an interview clip from him that I've been dying to play for ages, to be honest, I'm gonna read from his website about all the lineup changes that happened around this time from Ian Gillan joining the group to Glenn Hughes joining the group. And just have a listen to this. So this is from Joe's site, black sabbathcom It's from his timeline page. So when you land on the homepage, Look up the band in the row of options on the top. And then the first option down is timeline page. And I recommend any Black Sabbath fan, even casual, just to have a look at that page because it's so bloody interesting and well-researched. The best piece of Sabbath research available anywhere, in my opinion. Having read seven books on them now and numerous other sources and listened to numerous other people and podcasts, that's the best piece of research out there on Black Sabbath. So we start in December of 1982. This is the lineup of the band at the time. You have Ian Gillan on vocals, Tony Iommi on guitar, Geezer Butler on bass, Bill Ward on drums, and Jeff Nichols on keyboards. Now try and keep up with this. In summer 83, so... Firstly, sorry, I just I should just say that some of these don't have specific months because it's been poss- impossible for Joe to narrow it down to a specific month in some cases. A lot of this stuff is happening nearly 40 years ago and maybe 30 or 25 years ago when he started doing this research. So memories fade over time, of course. But he keeps trying to make this as accurate as possible and regularly updates it when he gets any new piece of information. Also, a massive disclaimer, at no point... Does Joe or am I claiming that these were all official lineups of Black Sabbath? Some of the singers that have come and gone were never official members of the band, but... These are all people who at one time either played with, rehearsed with or were intended to be a member of Black Sabbath and for various different reasons didn't work out. So we've started in December 82. We've got Gillen, Iommi, Butler, Ward and Nichols. And in the summer of 83, Bev Bevan replaces Bill Ward on drums. In March 84, Ron Keel replaces Ian Gillen in vocals. In the summer of 84, David... Donato replaces Ron Keel on vocals, and Bill Ward is back to replace Bev Bevan. In January 1985, a heavily disputed lineup, Jeff Fenholt comes in and replaces Ron Keel on vocals, and Gordon Copley replaces Geezer Butler on bass, and Eric Singer replaces Bill Ward on drums. Then for Live Aid, we had the OGs, the original gangsters, back together for one bill. That's Bill Ward, Tony Iommi, Ozzy Osbourne, and Geezer Butler. Then in summer of 85, when live aid was just a distant memory glenn hughes replaces jeff fenholt and dave spitz replaces gordon copley giving us the lineup that eventually went on to record the album seven star and it goes it gets worse it goes further so glenn hughes couldn't continue after a certain few gigs and had to be replaced by another singer and that singer recorded an album and then that singer left and had to be replaced by another singer but we'll get to that with in my discussions with my various different guests on this episode So I just wanted to give you a flavour of the type of stuff I was referring to when I ended the last episode by saying what happened next was an absolute disaster. That's not even to get into the fact that this was always supposed to be a Tony Iommi solo album. And as we all know, it was never released as a Tony Iommi solo album. It was released as a Black Sabbath featuring Tony Iommi, which to me doubles down on the fact that it's Black Sabbath. Far away from insinuating that it's a solo album... It's doubling down on the fact that not only is it Black Sabbath, but Tony Iommi is definitely included. Just in case you thought he wasn't, based on all this nonsense going on in the media, he definitely is. And this is definitely Black Sabbath. That's what that name says to me. So I always thought that was hilarious uh, that it said Black Sabbath featuring Tony Iommi. Anyway, let's get into some interviews.
2: I, I saw Seventh Star in Philadelphia and it where they had uh, Anthrax and Wasp opening for them. And at the time... I thought I saw Glenn Hughes. I didn't find find out until much later that I really saw Ray Gillen because I thought this being the mid 80s, this was also the big era of tour books. Uh, It might be better to call it a tour program, but anyway, um, there was no tour program, which I thought was odd at the time. In the mid 80s, it certainly was odd to not have one. uh, later I found out that obviously because they changed the singer they're not going to sell the one with the old singer so they just didn't sell it um but yeah I did not know that I saw Ray Gillen and I wish I would have known that when I saw it because I I enjoyed the show I thought it was good they did not sell it out I'm sure that had a lot to do with why the next tour was not like that but um yeah, it did not sell out at all. I, it was not like it was like only sold at 20% or anything like that, but it certainly wasn't 100. My seat, my seat for that venue was at the back of the venue, so it was not like I was able to buy a seat way down front and without a problem. I still had to buy seats in the back of the venue, but um, it was not 100% sold out. I enjoyed that show because at that time it was only the second Sabbath show I'd ever seen. Um, it, it's a bit odd in the overall history of the, the band, for sure. But yeah, I, I saw that and it was like another singer. <laughs> well, that brings up another whole subject. Who is in the band? People, my, my timeline page, um, I, I, I go specifically to call it lineup changes. Not necessarily who is in the band because in the band, yeah, I mean the the thirteen project. I mean the thirteen project. Once Bill Ward exited, neither um, Brad Wilk or Tommy Clafitos were ever in Black Sabbath. They were the hired drummer, but they were not in the band. Which which will also touch on another subject, which I know you want to talk about is the the two Sabbath idea. But we'll get to that. Um, but it's like. it it all speaks to ownership and to Sabbaths and yeah, it's like Clifitos was never in the band and he was never in any of the promo pictures. It was just the three of them, you know? And, And of course they never, well, I can't say never, but almost never included Jeff Nichols, which I believe is part of what his stepson's beef is. It's my opinion that Jeff Nichols is extremely important. Um, the in the band it's like it's a weird gray area about legality and who owns it and who collects money off royalties and blah blah blah, blah. i mean the eternal idol period is is the, the most confusing because if you go through all the periods of that it's every lineup every position except guitar has had at least two people go through there um and, and in fact the final published version of the Eternal Idol album has every position, uh, every lineup, well, not keyboards, but bass, guitar, vocals. Wait a minute, no, bass, drums, vocals. They all have two people at those positions on the studio album, even if they're not really on there. But um, it's just, God, it's... Did I ever consider it not Black Sabbath? No, because I was always... Black Sabbath, it's up to Black Sabbath to define what is Black Sabbath, not us. That doesn't mean I have to like it. It doesn't mean you have to like it. But you don't, I mean, not you personally, but you you in general. Um, You don't get to decide what Black Sabbath is. Black Sabbath decides that. You don't have to like it. But no, I never felt it wasn't. Having said that, I get why people do, because it was an inordinate amount of turnover in the mid-80s, in Eternal Idol in particular. Some of the lesser names in the the lineup, like, uh, I can't remember whether it was Ron Keel or Dave Donato that said it, because basically both of those guys didn't progress beyond the, the demo stage. They just, I mean, they may have farted around in the studio, but they never, like, Went into, okay, let's record this album level of stuff. Um, and one of them, I cannot remember which one, in an interview said um, basically it was mostly Ozzy and Geezer sitting around, excuse me, Tony and Geezer sitting around wishing they could get Ozzy back. If you do talk about business and bands, Kiss, it doesn't get any better than Kiss to talk about it. So, well, let, let, let me tell you what I'm talking about. When, 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 um, Peter Chris first let was, I, whether he was fired or, or let go, I don't remember the particulars right now, but he was no longer part of Kiss. He still remained in the Kiss Corporation and collected money on everything Kiss did for about three or four albums after he stopped doing anything. So what, was he in Kiss? What does that mean? What does being in the band actually mean? Well, yeah, Rat is like that. If you follow the history of Rat that with, with Bobby Boxer and suing the other guys and control of this and who, who owned this, uh, Queensryche was like that. When Queensryche was having their big stuff, um, you got to see all the legal documents, which, of course, they don't really want the fans to see, but they're legal documents. You can see them.
0: Alright so that was Joe Sigler from black-sabbath.com interesting stuff there from Joe and there's plenty more to come again on later episodes as we get deeper into the Tony Martin era and on to the Dio era and some very interesting stuff as well about the legalities surrounding the name Black Sabbath which Joe alluded to there but the clip is better placed in a later episode I think now I'm gonna play you some clips from people you've heard before on Ark Sabbath many times so in order Firstly, you'll hear me speaking to Philip Trummer. Now, Philip and I had a conversation about what constitutes Black Sabbath, just as Joe was talking about there as well. It seems to be around this era that people started maybe bowing out, not being as interested anymore. Uh, they didn't think maybe it was the real Black Sabbath. So I did want to get some Conversation out of my guests to determine where they stood on this issue because people have strong opinions on this and Again like this is maybe the time some people dropped out and, and it's also the that the time that some people picked up Their first black Sabbath album, maybe their first black Sabbath album was born again or was seventh star or was one of the Tony Martin albums, especially people uh, who were born maybe in the late 80s or that type of time and but here's me talking to Philip and for once I've left my audio in as I feel it's crucial to the conversation Uh, after that you'll hear from Melissa from Metal Chat with Melissa then you'll hear from Uncle Steve from Uncle Steve's Iron Maiden Zone and then you'll hear from Rye from Sabbath Bloody Podcast there's not too much talk about the music in this episode and I realized that um, not too many people are big fans of this album that I spoke to but on the next episode of Arc Sabbath I'm going to speak a little bit about the music, because I know that's been lacking on this episode. Uh, But I'll leave you with Rye's comments. That's going to do it for this episode of Feckin' Metal. I did want to get into The Eternal Idol, but I don't want this episode to be too long. So the material is ready to go. For the next time you'll hear from me, it'll be The Eternal Idol and onwards. We get into a good run of Tony Martin albums then. I hope you'll join me for that. So here in order is Philip Trummer, Melissa, Steve and Rye. And I will
1: see you next time. Black Sabbath is is Tony's band. End of story. Yeah,
3: that that really
1: is is what it is. It's his band. Him and Geezer are Black Sabbath to me. So that's a whole other story arc. Here is who is Black Sabbath. At at what point is it Black Sabbath, or it's Tony Iommi and friends? Yeah, yeah. But that 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 will start past the point of where we talk about. And, and you'll mm. have to discuss that with other people.
0: Well, I, I, I can think of a very unusual but interesting analogy to that. It's like, if you kept getting, like, let's say medical science has evolved quite a lot in the 20 years' time, and you kept getting parts of your body replaced, when does it cease to be your own self? Um, so, like, if you get on a... <laughs> Seriously, if you get on a... An arm replacement. Okay. It's just a, you know, it's a prosthetic arm or it's an electronic arm, a leg replacement. Same thing. Two legs. Fine. Two arms and two legs. Okay. You're still the same person. If you've got a heart transplant, are you still the same person? I don't know. Some people might think you were, uh, you got your eyes transplanted. Let's say you're 200 years old and this is all achievable. Uh, okay. You've got your eyes, your heart, all of your limbs. Um, are you still the same person? Maybe. What about your brain? What if you can get a brain transplant? Um, are you still the same person then? I think that's where we have to draw the line. I think so as well. Um, I think the brain is where we draw the line. It's funny though, is the, is the, is the personality con- contained within the brain? Is Black Sabbath contained within Tony Iommi to make a, a segue there? Um, is he the brain of Black Sabbath? Is he
1: the heart? I, I, have, I, I 100% think so. Yeah. I think if you remove Tony Iommi from Black Sabbath, it would not be Black Sabbath.
0: I I think so as well, but I think so mainly because of the biased version of events we've got. We've always had them in Black Sabbath. So, like, we don't have any other version of reality to compare that to. So maybe if Ozzy had only ever been the remaining member, would we think differently? Would we think, well, oh, it's not Black Sabbath without Ozzy, if events had unfolded differently? Perhaps. Perhaps. That's massively hypothetical and of no value put out. <laughs> I, just, I like to think of alternate uh
1: 400 points yeah alternative universes
4: at this point it's not sabbath right it's basically a tony iomi solo project but you know i'm sure the record company said you need to slap the name black sabbath on here in order to you know for sales so i mean i checked those projects out because i like glenn hughes because i still like tony iomi but then i still like i like cozy powell um but then it just gets, it's just, it's not Sabbath. It's just, it's, it's, it's not bad stuff. It's just totally different. Not, well, you know, I mean, it's still Tony Iommi, like you say, his guitar is his guitar, but it's, it's not Sabbath anymore. Which, which is the album that had Ray Gillen on it and then they re-recorded it with some other singer? Which one was that? And I, like I said, I don't remember these very well, but, but that's another one I do remember. Now I'm glad you said that. Cause I remember getting that. I had that from that tape club as well because I remember it was like Black Sabbath featuring Tony Iommi or something like that is how it was worded on there, if I remember right. I don't remember really honestly much about it, but I, I know that I went through that phase where I listened to all the Tony Martin albums. I listened to uh, Born Again. I listened to the one with Glenn Hughes, and I think there was stuff on there that I liked too. I'm try- I, I don't remember any of the song titles, but there, I seem to remember there was at least something on there I liked because Glenn Hughes is a great vocalist for a band as huge as they are and you know as big as their legacy is with you know the founders and people say they they're the ones that were the founded heavy metal or whatever um it's it's weird that they had so many singers and 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 all of them almost all of them are have a lot of notoriety you know i mean obviously ozzy ozzy went on and became bigger outside of sabbath dio was i don't know I don't, I don't really know his legacy. I don't know if his, if he was bigger outside of Dio than he was in, um, I mean, outside of Sabbath than he was with his own band, but then you had, uh, uh, what was it? Ian Gillen from deep purple. Then you had, um, yeah, Glenn Hughes. Then you have, uh, which Ray Gillen, I guess, wasn't, you know, he, all he, he did badlands later, but so, but, but I think the oddest, I think the oddest fit, as a vocalist was uh, was Ian Gillan he just he seems really strange a really strange fit
3: um yeah they they do lose me a little bit with Seven star it is, uh, um, i'm I'm hit and miss with that album and maybe I think I kind of try to push it out like the like the masses do as far as pushing it out of the catalog and saying oh well it was intended to be a Iomi solo project but when it comes down to it i mean they, they, they fucking throw a black sabbath name on the cover it's it's a black it's in the canon and it should be able to be compared against other things a lot of people say that about seven star they say well you can't compare it to mob rules or you can't it's like well you you kind of have to man um <laughs> uh I, i'm that way as far as like looking at canon material and and especially given the podcast journey that i did i mean i was sequentially going through it so i'm not gonna get hung up on the fact that it was labeled that, but I could see at the time. Um, and the backstory is that Iomi did want to do a solo project at that time. And the songs even that he presented there, he kind of just locked in with Hughes. Um, and I love Glenn Hughes. Um, I don't love him on Seven Star. I feel like his true power does come with uh, having a bass in hand and, and being that, that ripping front man. Um, he was kind of a bloated mess at that time and you can hear it in his vocals. I think, I don't think his vocal performance on seven star is as impressive as some people say, uh, personally. Yeah. And this is, it's funny cause there are some very, um, there's a bit of, uh, you know, your danger zone and your, um, uh, just some, some like real chuggy metal stuff. There's one that's very deep purple, um, angry heart. It sounds like John Lord is on it, um, just very riffy, and the the keyboards kind of doing the riff more than Iomi which is cool. It actually works pretty, pretty sweet. Um, but yeah, and that kind of flows into "In Memory," I think. They're kind of a one-two punch, but so great closer. I, like, I think closes strong. I like the bluesier stuff. It's just not really what I'm looking for as far as um, when you look at what comes after and where it would pick up. It would be a bit of an anomaly for me because I feel like. The following album is tremendous. And I listen to them very, like, you know, it's funny. A lot of the feedback I get from people are ones that like, especially when you get into this era, it's very real time with a lot of people. So like their butt hurt that it wasn't that at that time or whatever. Um, I don't have that stigma going in. Like, I'm just kind of doing them back to back. I tried to pace them out though. So I took them in, in order. I didn't listen ahead too much. Once I, once I got into the DOR, I was like, okay, I'm not listening head at all. Um, I knew stuff off of Seven Star and stuff off of Born Again because of the Deep Purple connection. I, had, like, when I kind of got back into Deep Purple, I was just like, oh, I think it was back in, like, the file sharing days and stuff like that, like, uh, on LimeWire or whatever. I think I, I just came across, it's like Deep Purple, Black Sabbath, Super Band, and it, it had a mix that had, um, I, I think it had maybe actual song Born Again, or Disturbing the Priest, that, or Zero the Hero, that's what it had. So it had Zero the Hero, and it had um, either Danger Zone or one of the more uh, driving hughes era ones. So I was familiar with the fact that it happened, but I didn't really know they were albums, <laughs> honestly. Yeah, so there's an in-between time there that's actually kind of important to mention, the Ray Gillen. Uh, so so during the, the Seven Star, the tour cycle, I mean, Glenn Hughes, Fell off in a bad way, um, and they had to quickly replace him. And uh, they went with your man Ray Gillen, who has a shady history, and his demise is something to be um, looked at through a lens where you're, you know, you separate the man from the uh, the talent for sure. But I think he's a tremendous vocalist. The, the big drama thing behind him is that uh, he had AIDS, and he knew he had AIDS, and he ended up uh, essentially killing a few girls um so yeah there's some real that, that's the reason the uh catalog's kind of buried um when you look at his stuff that he did with jakey e. lee later which is fucking awesome you, you know badlands you fuck with that at all no just some shit hot kind of stomping uh rake vocals are amazing but yeah all that stuff kind of got buried in lawsuits because of uh some of his indiscretions later but but besides that it, he was in sabbath um he kind of took over glenn hughes when uh during the Seven Star cycle, did a great job. There's some fantastic live recordings, actually, of, of Ray Gillen, which was funny. That was actually a lot of people were surprised by that. That um, I think Iomi was part of combining what was out there, um, but he released actually full-on concert with with Ray Gillen as part of the package, which is great. And the demos are out there too. The entire album is out there with Ray Gillen singing on it. Uh, I don't know if that was leaked or if that was part of that package. You know? So he he came on board for the tour for Seven Star. Basically, did the whole world tour, and so they were rolling with him. And uh, the the Iomi had kind of pillaged uh, Lita Ford's rhythm section, so she had uh, uh, or he had uh, Eric Singer in there on the drums, Kiss fame. Um, so those guys went in to do the Eternal Idol, which is of phenomenal record i I actually it's my it's my favorite of the martin era but i don't even consider it martin era because of the crossover martin was kind of brought in to because they had a falling out with gillen or whatever during the process
0: all right so cliffhanger there from rye as i said next time we'll talk about the eternal idol and onwards i was going to leave it with my last message but i forgot to mention if you'd like to contact me on social media you can get me at feckin on twitter feckin'metal at gmail.com on email And if you'd like to contact me on Facebook, there is the Feckin' Checkin' Podcast Network Facebook page, which I'm on from time to time. Uh, You can also get me there. A few people have actually made contact with me through Messenger on Facebook. That's fine as well, if you want. I've A couple of people now I speak to on there as well. So uh, please do contact me if you have any thoughts, opinions, feedback, etc. on the podcast. There's also the official Feckin' Metal uh, playlist on Spotify. If you look that up, you should find it. It features... Pretty much all of the music I have played that's available to put on a playlist on Spotify. Um, on one yeah, on one giant playlist, which is about five or six hours long now, I think. But if you've just started listening recently and you want to kind of get a feel for what this podcast is about and what type of music I talk about and am interested in, check out the official Feckin Metal playlist on Spotify. And that's going to do it. So we will talk again about the tony martin era of black sabbath covering off albums like the eternal idol tear and headless cross and what a great collection of albums those were looking forward to it and i'll see you then